Amen. Praise the Lord. Welcome again to our uh, Saturday evening service and a uh, uh, real joy to have you with us. And uh, this week, I want to just continue on the you know, uh, message that I'd spoken two weeks ago about the Samaritan woman at the well, okay? And you know, as mentioned before, I think that you know, as we look and consider at these accounts from the Word of God, you know, not from our 21st century perspective, but from the first century perspective, understanding the background, the backdrop, and the cultural context of which these events happen, that we we actually glean a lot of new things and fresh things that are incredibly applicable even for the days that we are living in today. Amen. And so I want to continue on and if you missed the message, I want to strongly encourage you to go uh, on demand on our YouTube channel and you can uh, be able to get a, a hold of the first message in which I covered three points about what this encounter uh, speaks to us about. But I want to plunge into the fourth uh, one because this account of this Samaritan woman at the well is really very, very familiar for most of us. Now, the fourth thing I want to bring out about this um, encounter that Jesus had was that we want wells, that we are all looking for wells, but Jesus wants springs. He gives springs, okay? And I want to begin by looking at John chapter 4, verse 13 to verse 15. And these are what the Word of God says. Whoever drinks of this water, which is from a well, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up. And that's a description of a spring into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Um, I, I don't know, I like this concluding statement from this woman. It's absolutely amazing. I love her response because it is so real. And I think that if we ever hear something like that, oh, there's water that once you drink, you never be thirsty again, we would be saying the same thing that this woman said, would say. And, and we do so often say exactly what this woman has said. Maybe it's not about water that you know, quenches once and for all our thirst, but it sure tells us a certain attitude that we have, right? Show me the goods, tell me the benefits, get, get me over the hump of this difficult thing. Give me the life, soothe my pain, get me out of the rut. You know, save me all the effort and make my life smooth sailing all the way. And we're all guilty of this because it's a simple attitude and mentality in which the focus is ourselves. Amen. And that's the primary thing. We're looking at ourselves and where our needs are. You see, as we consider this whole encounter of, with this Samaritan woman, the centerpiece of this encounter is an object that is called the well. Now, if we ever decide that we're going to make a dramatic presentation of this, say for Christmas or for Easter, uh, trust me, at the center of the stage will be a well because everything happened because of this well. It is the landmark that made this whole encounter possible. If not for the existence of this well, Jesus wouldn't have sat there. If not for the existence of this well, this woman would not have come there in the middle of the day. It was because the well is there and because of the well, which is a store of water just sitting there, you know, it became, this whole encounter became possible. What we got to realize that in the Middle East, unlike here in Singapore where you open your tap and there is running water, in the Middle East, water is probably the most precious commodity that is out there and that is available. In the days of Jesus, Petrol was not the commodity, okay? They had not yet discovered fuel and, uh, you know, and petrol and all that, okay? And surely water was the most precious commodity. And man, when you see a well, it's a store of water just sitting there, available. You can go there any time in the day and you can take whatever that you want. And I'm telling you, who doesn't love a well? Who doesn't like a well that is filled to the brim? Let me remind you, doesn't this look, doesn't this seem a lot, a lot like a nice fat bank account sitting, you know, in 
in DBS Bank or OCBC or UOB, you know, all our savings tuck into that nice little place whenever we want to take your ATM card, the money comes out, right? It feels safe, it feels wonderful, it gives us security and it's something we lean upon, rely upon, fall back on when the need arises. In fact, in the days of Jesus, towns and villages were built around wells. Amen. Nobody's going to build a town around a place where there's no water, okay? It has to be built around wells. And when you discover a well, and that's where civilization begins to go around it. And in the same manner, all of us seek to build our lives around a steady and assured source of provision. Whether it be a well-paying job, whether to be located in a city where there, are, uh, you know, where there are opportunities of employment and so on and so forth. But Jesus proposes to this woman to give her not a well, that's, what, not, that's what, what Jesus is proposing to give her. But Jesus is saying to her, I will give you a spring that will come out from within you. And the imagery that the spring conjures is very, very different from a well. Amen. A well is just still water, just sitting there. But a spring is constantly moving. You can't stop the spring. Amen. You can't like, oh, don't waste any of this spring. You know, just collect all the water. There'll be, there'll be no end to it. You know, it just keeps moving and it depends on the weather, on the rain that comes down and you can't store it, you can't make it stationary and it is just dependent on how the weather has been. Has it rained or has it not rained? And the parallels here for us bring uh, us to grasp an understanding of the difference between what we want and what Jesus is offering us. All of us, we want something steady like a well that is going to be always there, available whenever we want to. But the problem is that that's not what Jesus wants to give to us. He doesn't want us to have something regular, predictable, tucked away, just sitting there. But Jesus wants us to be dependent on Him all the time. Jesus offers to put a spring inside every one of us. The spring is sourced by the Lord Himself. When Christ is in us, only then does the spring begin to come forth. Amen. It springs up because of our daily walk with Him. It springs up because we spend time with Jesus and we hear the voice of the Lord. I'm telling you this, if you stop spending time with Jesus, that well is going to dry up. Amen? Unlike the weather, the natural spring, which comes depending on the weather, the spring on the inside is dependent upon our walk with Jesus. You see, we can control a well, but a spring controls us. And we don't like that. A well is about, is about ourselves because we can access it at our own time. But a spring is about others because Jesus puts a spring inside of us to feed the earth and to feed the nations. Amen. And it's not about us. You see, the encounter was very much an encounter where a well is being transformed into a spring. The woman that came, the Samaritan woman, let me tell you this, there is no doubt that she is one needy woman. No doubts at all. Come on, five husbands. And the current one is not the one she's married to. I mean, if you had two enough, you know, I don't want the third one anymore, you know? And some of you five and you still want another man. Be done with the man, man, come on. <laughs> and, you know, she had needs. I mean, think about how after five, six husbands, I mean, the needs that's in her, the brokenness that is within her, right? She had enough troubles. And after five men plus the one, is, I wonder how many kids does she have? Have you ever wondered about that? Because there's only talk about the husband, never talk about the kids. But I guarantee you that there were a whole handful of kids, at least two per husband, okay? At least two per husband. And how many mouths does she need to feed? And that's why she needs to come to the well. But by the end of this encounter, the wonderful thing is that this woman ceases to be about a well and she becomes a spring. She becomes a spring. 
Because we know this because the whole city comes to Jesus as she testified to them and said, come see a man who told me everything that I've done in my life. And the whole city comes running towards the Lord. You see, we don't know for certain what happened after this. We don't know what happened to this woman. Did she marry the man that she was with? Did you find a seventh man? You know, that finally she settled down and things sorted out. But what we do know is this, that she did receive Christ into her life. She became a fountain and, a, and surely as Jesus promised her, there must have been a spring of living waters that began to rise up within her and the spring provided enough water not just for herself but for her children. It satisfied her. Amen. It brought a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment to her. You know, there's something I want to point out to us today between the well and the spring. You see, every time we seek to propagate religion, we seek to propagate a well because religion always seeks to produce a product. Hey, come and you have a better life. Tithe and God will bless you back seven times more. Be faithful to God and God will be faithful to you. It is always transactional. The way in which it is framed is always something about getting something out for ourselves. But a relationship is different. A relationship will always produce a purpose. Because as you walk with Jesus, as you love Him, there's something about Jesus that you will see and you will be propelled towards what is it that He is concerned about. There's something about hanging around Jesus that you'll stop thinking about yourself. Amen. And you start thinking about others. You see, a well is a product. It is about religion, but a spring is a relationship dependent upon our walk with God. And it always produces a sense of purpose. The fifth thing I want to bring out about this encounter is that there's a difference between believing dogma versus discovering a person. You see, I mentioned this last week, that the woman said two things to Jesus. He said, are you greater than our father, Jacob? This is significant what she's saying. And then she says, our fathers worship in this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem this is the place where we ought to worship. Now these two statements that this Samaritan woman made, something interesting is, is being conveyed to us. These statements has to do with her sense of her heritage, of the traditions that have been passed down, that she's been taught. You see, they're, they're talking about, when you talk about whose father it is, you're talking about the covenant that God made. Now, if I can liken these to the dogmas and to the doctrines that we have been taught. And this woman, in referring to Jacob, you know, is talking about how God has made a covenant with her people, with her people more than with the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they represent the patriarchs of the covenant. And by associating with them, we connect ourselves to that same covenant and it's all about heritage it's all about your lineage it's all about the parentage to which you are born and at the same time there are those teachings that have been passed down to us by our fathers our mentors our pastors our religious upbringing our training and equipping classes and the like Amen. If you've been in Cornerstone for some time now, you would have been taught, you know, the foundational truths, the foundations of our faith, of eschatology, of pneumatology, Christology, and what other theologies are there, okay? And the women, and if I could say this, knew many of these things. That's why she could talk about these things. She could mention about worship, even though she had some character issues. She knew the arguments, the statements of faith, the laws, the traditions. And, you know, surprisingly, she knew these things, and yet she was empty. She could claim her heritage as coming from Jacob, and yet she was empty. And that's the issue that is at hand. What is clear for us as Christians is that the gift of God is not doctrine, but a person. Amen. 
This is by no means saying that the Word of God is unimportant and I want to encourage us because there is a systemic move in a large part of the church where we, whereby we begin to create a God after our own image that the church is going back to the sin of the golden calf and they create a God and then, and, you know, of their own understanding and it says, this is your God, worship Him. And I want to say that here in Cornerstone, we must never do that. There is a prescribed and declared person of who God is in the Word of God and we must never ever change that. And then that is why doctrine remains important and it remains vital and as pastors, it is our job to establish doctrine. Amen. But I want to say this, that what is established is that the Word has also become, has been made flesh. Christ, the Word of God, dwelt amongst us in our midst. And Jesus calls us to believe in Him and then rivers of living water shall flow out from us. Isaiah 42 verse 6, a messianic verse speaks about, you know, Jesus and He says, I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. Did you know the covenant is not about the lineage? Your covenant is a person. Even in the Old Testament, they alluded to this. I've given you, Christ is given as the covenant. And in receiving Christ, do we come into the covenant that God wants to give to us? You see, Jesus could have, been, could have shown from the scriptures that Jacob was rightfully the father of the Jewish nation. Amen? Not the Samaritans. He could have discussed the position of Jerusalem and how important it is its spiritual significance. He could have told her, hey, when I return by my second coming, I'm coming back to Jerusalem and not anywhere else. And all that would have been completely true. But yet Jesus did neither of those things. He didn't say any of that. But instead, he led him to one thing that is more important than all these doctrinal accuracy. It is to him, himself. This is what Jesus said. You see, you, you, when you truly get Jesus, when you find the Lord, when you meet with the Lord, then all these peripheral things will fall away and God will lead you into all truths. I remember several years ago, I led this person to salvation and the person, you know, had been in church for a number of years and had gotten water baptized. But I've always suspected whether the person was really, really born again or what, did he get water baptism, baptism because he wanted something else, okay? And I always was never convinced he was born again, but then he had a crisis in his life. And when he had this crisis, he came to the Lord and he received Christ genuinely. You know, the funny thing is this. The moment he got saved, he knew that he had to pray. He knew he had to tithe. He knew that when people were in trouble, he could offer to pray for them and he would pray for people and they would get healed, they would get answers to prayer. I didn't even have to teach him any of these things. You see, if you have a genuine encounter with God, think about this, when this man filled with demons encounters Jesus, and he says to Jesus, you know, I want to follow you. And the Lord says, first, I'm going to put you through a navigator's uh, assurance of salvation. Then I'm going to put you through six steps on the foundational truths. He doesn't do any of that. He says, go back to your town preach and tell them what I've done for you. I think Jesus has the worst follow-up plan ever in the whole world. All the churches today, we got it better than Jesus. We have more wisdom than Jesus does. We know how to get somebody properly established, disciple, water baptized, train, cell leaders training, take a cell and all that. Jesus does nothing of those things. I just think that, hey, he's got the worst follow-up plan. And he sends this man back to where he came from. He says, you go preach. Because Jesus knows this. When you get him, you get something that is irrefutable. Amen. And I'm asking us to face up to this. Have we met Jesus? 
Maybe we've met him and we've forgotten. Maybe we've stopped meeting him. And that's why we need to go for all these other classes. Now, I'm not saying don't go for classes, please, okay? Go for the classes so long, please. <laughs> if the next training equipping, you know, tenants drop, they'll blame me for this, okay? But I'm saying you can do all that, and if you still don't have Jesus, then you'll still be empty like this woman. Amen. The, the sixth point I want to bring about is this, is to confront sin face on. Jesus said to this woman, you know, go get your husband. And the woman answered, she said, I have no husband. I have no husband. And Jesus, knowing that she's had five, he said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you, are, you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. I love the way Jesus answers us. This woman was lying to Jesus. Right? He was just hiding behind a technicality. Have you, ever, have you ever had kids? Now, if you have, okay, you either have kids or you have not had kids. But if you have kids, you know what, what a technicality is. Because the kids will come. I say, hey, you know, I want you to be home by 10 o'clock, 10 p.m., you know. And then they are home at 10.30. He says, well, technically 10 o'clock, I started my way home. Technically, you know. The technicality is important. Well, technically I did this. This is what this woman is doing. She's, she's basically concealing her state from the Lord. She's hiding. And then Jesus exposes it. And then on top of this, you've spoken truly. True. You spoke what is true. That's like, come on. But that's exactly who Jesus was. That's exactly who Jesus is, the graciousness of our Savior. And I, I love this because I'm telling you this, this is what all of us are. We focus on the details, the technicality, the circumstantial conditions of the circumstances, and we excuse ourselves, we blame someone else, and we do all that just so that we don't have to face the nagging shame that sin brings upon us because facing our own sin and our own mistakes square on is really difficult and we rather not do it. I'm telling you this, as Christians, we have the most amazing thing. We are forgiven by Jesus and we have access to the Father that when we confess our sins, our sins will be forgiven us. And yet, in spite of that, most of us choose to respond exactly like this Samaritan woman does, to hide instead of face the sins and the mistakes that we've made. In fact, this woman then goes on and she tries to change the subject matter. And he says, but you know... We, our fathers say we worship here. Your father says that we, you know, we worship there. What has that got to do with her husband, right? And, and what she is, you know? And we would do anything to avoid being confronted by our own sense of depravity and our own sense of wickedness. But the strange thing is this, that while this woman tries to hide under theology, she nonetheless asks a question that actually has real relevance to the state that she is in. Which, where is the correct temple? Is it on this mountain or is it in Jerusalem? Well, let's not forget that at that time, Jesus had not gone to the cross to die for the sins of mankind. As far as the, 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 the concepts were in the minds of the people, then there was an atonement that is required and that atonement had to be done in the temple. And therefore, this woman's question made some sense because she's saying, then where is the temple that we're supposed to go where our sins may be forgiven and atonement may be made? Right? And so, well, made sense. And yet the thing is, throughout these moments, Jesus was never once condescending towards her. He revealed the true state of her inward condition. He doesn't ridicule the theological question that she raises. 
But what is more important is that he addresses the question she raises in the most serious manner. I don't know if you realize this, the most profound statement about worship in the whole of the New Testament is about to be spoken to this woman. And Jesus says this profound thing that we know so well, that the Father is speaking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. I don't know how you feel when you read this statement. I read this statement and in my heart something stirs that this is what the Father is seeking for. Worshippers will worship Him in spirit and in truth. But you know, I forget who this statement was told to. I forget who this revelation was committed to. It was to this woman who's trying to hide. Is this true? This woman who's using theology and as excuse to run away and not face up to her sin, and yet Jesus not only does not condemn her for doing that, he gives to her the most profound truth that we understand in the New Testament concerning worship. Now take a closer look at what Jesus, this statement that Jesus makes to this woman, right? The true nature and state of worship is told to this woman. Explanation was too profound because in a single statement, Jesus basically crushed every prevailing understanding of the Jewish mindset and the religious system, right? Everything up to this point of time in the Jewish system in the Old Testament is built around a system whereby, you know, um, you know the, the whole faith is exclusive only to the Jews. Amen? If you wanted to believe in Jehovah God, you had to become a Jew. There's no other way. You had to go through a ceremony for men. You have to become circumcised. And you had to keep all the laws. You have to go through all that in order to become accepted into the commonwealth of the Jewish uh, faith. It was uh, a faith that was built on the loyalty to the land, the promised land. Loyalty to the temple that is in Jerusalem and to the precise keeping of the laws of the Torah where you had to keep all the laws. But from verses 21 to verses 24, Jesus dismantled everything in speaking to this woman and answering this woman because now he opens salvation not just to the Jews, but he says the Gentiles, you can have salvation as well. The second thing, he desionized the faith by saying that our faith is no longer tied to the promised land nor to the temple in Jerusalem, but to, to, the, to the one who is wholehearted towards God. And wherever you are, you can worship God. And then finally, he extends forgiveness to this woman instead of the prescribed requirement on the Torah, which is the stoning of this woman. And Jesus did that in its one single statement, so profound that, the, that this woman couldn't handle it. And then she says, you know, the, we, you know, our fathers tell us there is a Christ that is coming. There is a Messiah that's coming. When the Messiah comes, he will explain all these things to us. And it is at this point, I believe, is the climax of John chapter 4 in verse 26. And Jesus says this to the woman. He says, I who speak to you am he. And the word he in the Greek, is the word I am, which is, which is in, the, in the, the Greek Old Testament, is the same word that is used when Moses asked God, what is your name? And God answers, I am that I am. And Jesus uses the Father's name in the Old Testament and says, I am. I who speak to you, I am. This is the revelation of Jesus, who is the great I am. Jesus tells this woman with no doubts at all that he is the Messiah, God's only begotten, the Word of God made flesh, the Messiah, the Christ, the third person in the burning furnace, the captain of the host. The lights come on, something stirs in this woman, and living waters begins to spring up within her. Faith arises. The person of Jesus Christ answers all the questions that needs to be answered. Something is silenced within her. She beholds the Lord, and something stirs in her heart. I'm telling you this, when you 
catch a revelation of Jesus Christ, something does happen to you. The questioning ends. You might not have all your answers, all your questions answered, but all that questioning is going to be quelled. The storm is going to cease, amen. The raging is going to stop because there's something about the person of Jesus Christ when he comes and he stands before us and he reveals himself to us. I want to say this to all of us. I want to encourage us to come back to gazing upon our Savior and to face the sins or the failures and the weaknesses in our lives. I say this to us because all of us have some weakness, amen. And the thing is this, after being Christians for 10 years, for 5 years, for 15 years, for 20 years, we tend to just brush our sins under the carpet. You make a mistake, you're rude to your spouse. You're kind of like, it's okay lah, we've been married for 20, 25 years, we're used to each other this way. You say something wrong and you're not truthful about something and you kind of just brush it, oh, it's okay, never mind, I'm under the blood of Jesus. And there is no longer a sense of coming to, fa to face the Lord and to gaze upon Him and what He's made available and to come clean to Him and says, Lord, no, it's not good enough. I don't want to continue to respond this way. I don't want to continue to act in this manner. I don't want the duplicity that remains in my life. I want there to be purity, integrity, and honesty in everything that I do. Amen. And I know I'm speaking to people tonight. I know that I'm talking to people tonight who need to come clean before the Lord. Amen. And I want to say that this is not a condemning message. This is not a message about how terrible you all are. This is a message to tell you that there is a Savior that is available to us, especially because we've put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to encourage us to stop evading the reality of our states by hiding behind technicalities, half-truths, Stop blaming other people. Stop sweeping things under the carpet. Instead, come gaze upon Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And He's the only one with the ability to wash us and cleanse us of all our sins and to help us overcome our sinful nature. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Finally, I want to close this and I want to give us an opportunity to respond. The Samaritan woman finds living waters while the, while the disciples puzzle over food. It's, it's amazing. John 4, 28. The woman then left her, her water pot, went her way into the city. She left her water pot. And in John 4, 34, the disciples come and they offer Jesus food and, and Jesus says, no, I'm not hungry anymore. And they're puzzled. And the Lord says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What a parallel there is. And the commentary tells us this woman left the water pot at the well. The simile of this encounter must not escape us. There are two kinds of water spoken of in this encounter. And again, there are two kinds of food that are mentioned. I want to quickly show you the parallel with the Samaritan woman and the disciples. The Samaritan woman came and the Lord told her that she, he's thirsty. The disciples left because Jesus said that he's hungry. The Samaritan woman gave, uh, look, came looking for water. The disciples went looking for food. You know, and the Samaritan woman, she sought well water, and of course the disciples went to look for, to purchase human food. But she left her water pot behind, and the disciples returned with food. She found divine living waters, and they discovered Jesus had eaten divine food. And as she drank of that divine water, she brings the whole city to Jesus, and Jesus 
on saying to them about the, the, the true divine fruit that comes from doing the will of the Father. He says, now I send you to go harvest what you have not sown. If you can just see the parallel of this about water and food, because Jesus lived in days much simpler than ours. Amen. If you had food, you had water, you had everything. Today, we need our internet. If the internet is down, how to work? How to do this? We can't go anywhere, no GPS. We have our grab delivery, our automobiles, our Netflix, our gym membership. By the way, I have every one of these things. <laughs> but in those days, they only needed water and food. And in a single encounter, Jesus shows us that all that we need in life comes from two things. It comes from Him and it comes from doing the will of the Father. And that satisfies everything. I don't know if there's an emptiness and you are feeling in your hearts. I don't know if there is a dryness or thirst or a hunger. And somehow you run everywhere and you don't feel fulfilled. You feel like you're left in a lurch. But this evening, all I want to say to you is that Jesus, he does everything. Amen. It's all about just coming back to Jesus. The climax of John chapter 4 is when Jesus says to her, I am and when we behold him, that he is the great I am. He is everything. He is the water. He is the food. Then we have everything. Amen. I want to invite all of us to stand to our feet. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And they're going to help me with this. We're going to sing a song together. And I want to open the altar area. Amen. <clears throat> I really feel this. <clears throat> and I want to ask you, just bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want to share something personal. I want to stand before the church and tell you guys that the last couple of weeks has been intensely difficult for me personally. And yet in the intensity of the difficulties that I'm going through, the sense of disappointment, the sense of being let down, in the midst of all that, I call to the Lord and I say, Jesus, what is happening? Give me an answer. I almost said to the Lord, Lord, give me an account of this. Why is this happening? And yet, it was as though I was missing the question. I was missing the point. And as I went through this last two weeks in a state of turmoil, I find myself singing this song over and over again in my spirit. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. I don't want anything. I don't need anything. Just give me Jesus. And suddenly I feel like, hey, it really doesn't matter whatever I've gone through. Just give me Jesus. And this is the greatest thing that's ever been given to us. God gave His Son for us and to us. And we can have Jesus. The veil has been torn. The price has been paid. The way has been made. The gap, the chasm has been bridged. And we've been reconciled to the Almighty God. And nothing stands in the way between us and Him. And what is it that still separates us? That we would chase after all these other things in the world. And yet have not apprehended Christ to know Him. I want to ask, I don't know what song are we singing. We're going to sing, Give Me Jesus. Okay? And, and before we sing this song, I want to ask us, 
all over this place. Your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Maybe um, you don't have to close your head. You have to close your eyes and bow your heads. But if you want Jesus, if you feel this thirst, I want to ask you right now, wherever you just come to the front. Nobody's gonna pray for you. Nobody's gonna lay hands on you. But just come, just come because there is something beautiful about taking a step out, a step of faith, an action of faith to say to the Lord, Lord, I want you. I'm not going to just sit in my chair and tell you I want you. I'm going to take a step out and I'm going to come to the front to tell you I want you. You don't have to, you know, if you want to just come, okay? I don't want to be emotional about this, though I'm deeply emotional about this. But, but you know, if you want to just come right now, just get out of your seats and come. And we're going to sing this song. We're just going to worship the Lord. And we're just going to tell Him, we want you, Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Amen. And I want to ask you to make this place an altar. And this I know. This I know. I know. I know. I know Jesus sees every hungry heart. The Bible says this, that he had to go through Samaria. He had to. I think the only thing that drew him, the thing that compelled him so greatly was because he knew there was someone there hungry for him. There was someone there, there were people there, a city of people that were hungry for him. Amen. And I want to encourage you, if you just sense the drawing, just wherever you are, just come to the front right now. And I want to encourage you to come. I'm going to sing the song and worship the Lord. listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.